This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we got a great show today. There's a lot to talk about, a lot of topics. You know, this is the World Cup. This is supposed to be the most joyous, important sporting event in the world right now. And it's taking place in Qatar, even though most people don't know how to say the word Qatar. It's in Doha in Qatar and its environment. And Qatar has been coming under brutal criticism for hosting the World Cup. We're going to talk about whether or not that's justified. Is it racism? Is it Western hypocrisy? Which I think it is, but you know, we'll get into it. Uh, it's been extraordinary so far from what I've been able to see. And one of the biggest uh, kind of medieval countries in the world, Saudi Arabia, has beheaded 12 people on drug offenses uh, after going on a two-year hiatus. I think Mohammed bin Salman has realized that because of the price of oil, he can get away with more murder. We're going to talk a little bit about the resurgence of the the uh, the beheading as a uh, as a method of uh, law enforcement in the medieval kingdom. We may not have time to talk about Benjamin Netanyahu because you know part of his campaign, Jamal is to legalize the Israeli illegal colonial settler outposts. I don't know if we'll have time to talk about that today, but that's one of his campaign promises. We'll eventually get to that. But before we get to all those things, Jamal, you did a really great interview with Nurit Pelad El-Hanan. She's going to talk about how the discourse in Israeli school books have always been designed to dehumanize and degrade and humiliate Palestinians in order to justify defining them as outsiders and posing an existential threat to the Jewish ethnocracy. Nurit is a lecturer in language education at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the author of the book, Palestine in Israel Schools Books, Ideology and Propaganda in Education. I mean, this is something that the apartheid regime has been accusing Palestinian school administrators and school books of, you know, not having an accurate portrayal of the apartheid state. And it's ironic, uh, Nurit has done her own work and found that it's just quite the opposite, that uh, Israeli textbooks have been notoriously racist and uh, dehumanizing towards Palestinians. Exactly, Jess. And this is not only what the Israelis try to basically, through their propaganda machine, say that Palestinians are doing with with, uh, Israel, but also they are lobbying, actively lobbying the EU and the United States to cut uh, basically foreign aid to Palestinians, which is uh, dedicated to... Uh, for education. I mean, they go after these ed- education grants. So let's uh, watch the interview with uh, Nurit uh, Peled El-Hanan. Israel's increasingly egregious racist policies and violence against Palestinians are making many of its previous champions withdraw their support. To counter this, Zionists are scrambling to muzzle legitimate discourse about Israel's abhorrent practices by working to eliminate all representation of Palestine in international civil society. The most fertile space for critical inquiry is the classroom, so considerable pressure 
been focused on chilling free speech in all levels of the education system. In a recent panel discussion, Silencing Palestine in the Education System, Dr. Nurit Peled Elhanan details how discourse in Israeli school books has always sought to dehumanize and degrade Palestinians in order to justify defining them as outsiders, posing an existential threat to the Jewish ethnocracy. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Nurit Peled Elhanan. She's a lecturer in language education at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the author of Palestine in Israeli School Books, Ideology and Propaganda in Education. Dr. Peled Elhanan was the co-recipient of the Sakharov Prize for Human Rights and the Freedom of Thought awarded by the European Parliament. Welcome to Arab Talk, Nurit. Thank you. Good morning. Let me begin by asking you what prompted you to undertake the study of Israeli school books. Uh, I would also like to add that your book is a meticulously researched and cited analysis of education discourse in Israel. Well, that, that that's my work. I decided when I started to, to be a researcher to study educational discourse, all the aspects of educational discourse. I started by... Um, uh, language development at school, writing, speaking, and then classroom discourse, and then racist discourse at schools. And then I decided to go to to school books. The truth is that I wanted to, um, to study the scientific discourse at schools, in school books. But when I started, I saw that there's a lot of uh, racist um, uh, discourse in school books, uh, mainly with regards to Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel. And then uh, I narrowed the study to that. And um, another thing is that I was always bothered by the question, how can you take nice boys and girls and turn them into monsters when they are 18? put a uniform on them and turn them into cold-blooded murderers. And I thought that it takes a lot of education to do that. So this is the other question that bothered me, and uh, I really wanted to to go into it. But it covers all, all, all aspects of education, not only school books, but school books is a good example. You talk about Israel's ethnocracy, which is quite different from the claim of the only democracy in the Middle East that is uh, promoted in in Israeli Hasbara. What is the distinction between the two? Well, um, the idea of ethnocracy is, of course, not mine, but of Professor uh, Oren Iftachel, who is a political geographer. Ethnocracy means that one ethnic group dominates all the others. And uh, this is what happens there. There's one ethnic group that has all the privileges and all the rights, and there's another ethnic group uh, that doesn't have all the privileges and all the rights, especially not national rights or all ki- any kind of group rights uh, and individual rights. For example, the right to buy land. Palestinians cannot buy land in Israel. Palestinian citizens cannot buy land in Israel. And that is why they never get any permit to, to build anything. And that's why everything they build is considered illegal and their houses are being demolished. Uh, they don't have access to all the jobs. 
uh, they don't have access to all services. They don't have uh, the same uh, <clears throat> infrastructure as Jewish uh, uh, settlements. And this is by law. I mean, it's not a whimsical thing. It is in the law. There are about 35, I think, or maybe more by now, uh, racist laws in Israel against the Palestinian citizens. So this is ethnocracy. One ethnic group has a so-called democratic uh, uh, regime and the other uh, does not. And I'm talking about the citizens and not about the Palestinians in the occupied territories who don't have any sort of human rights. And they are another group. I mean, they are just there as uh, what uh, philosopher Agamben calls bear meat. The only thing that defines them as alive is the right to kill them. But they are not citizens. I'm talking about, in my book, I'm talking about the citizens. You're not... talking about what we refer to as uh, uh, Palestinians of uh, 1948. Yes. Uh, so, so give us examples of, of how uh, Israeli books uh, present Palestinians. First of all, Palestinians are, are absent from Israeli consciousness and Israeli culture and Israeli discourse. When you talk about Israeli literature, you will never mention Emil Habibi, who was an Israeli citizen and a very important one. You never mention a Palestinian Israeli scientist or teachers or, or artists or whatever. This is the general discourse. Uh, it's in school books, they are not uh, they don't exist either. The books I studied until 2009 in the book, uh, still, um, some of them still uh, mentioned the fact that they are Palestinian citizens and they are not very uh, equal and so on and so forth, and even mentioned the massacres that were perpetrated uh, on Palestinians. But of course, the massacres were always legitimated by the far-reaching consequences for the Jews. Today, they are not mentioned at all. I mean, uh, the books talk about uh, minorities who have minority rights but you don't know who they are and what they are. In any book in Israel, and in Israel there are lots of uh, textbooks because it's a private industry, it has to be authorized by the Ministry of Education, but uh, every, anyone can write a book, and, and, and the teachers can choose whatever they want. But in none of these books, even the books that uh, teach you about the Arab culture or Arab language or whatever, you don't find one photograph of a Palestinian human being that looks like us. You find the most racist caricatures of some Alibaba with a camel. Talk, talk about uh, how Israel seeks to frame all Jews uh, as homecoming indigenous, whereas the actual indigenous uh, Palestinians are treated as uh, threatening others interlopers uh, 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 even. Yeah, they are portrayed as invaders. They are invaders. And the Jews the Jews are coming home. The Jews, uh, <clears throat> you, you even have uh, phrases like, uh, Jerusalem has always been the capital of the Jewish people, except for the 2,000 years we haven't been there. I mean, 2,000 <laughs> years are erased in one sentence. Uh, and that's uh, that's how people talk. That's how my students talk. We were here first 4,000 years ago. And I tell them, you know, in another country, you would have been hospitalized for such a phrase. But um, 
this is the talk. This is the discourse, the general discourse, and also in textbooks. This is ours. We came back, and the denial of any life in Palestine during this uh, 2,000 years is equal to the denial of any life of Jews in other countries. We don't learn about anything about the life of Jews in other countries. We learn about pogroms and the Holocaust, but not about the life. We don't know anything because this is one of the most important Zionist principles to negate exile, to negate the diaspora, to forget you were Polish, to forget you were Russian and so on. So 2000 years are erased from consciousness, from discourse, from maps. I mean, it's really strange because I I, I remember, you know, when I went to, to college, we had to do some readings uh, like about, for example, the writings of uh, Isaac Bichiva Singer and and mm. and and yes. uh, basically uh, Yiddish writers who yeah, wrote yeah. wrote about their life in Germany, in Poland, in in Hungary, etc. And and I'm actually surprised to to learn that this is absent in Israeli literature. It's absent in Israeli school books. It's absent in Israeli education. And Bashevi Zinger is not Zionist. Zionist literature is uh, really uh, concentrating on the experience of pioneers in Israel, in Palestine and in Israel. And uh, but I was talking about education. You don't you don't learn anything about them, especially not in Muslim countries. Now there are uh, all kinds of uh, attempts to go back and uh, and uh, revive. Uh, this uh, glorious culture that they had in Muslim countries. The, the, there's a course in university. You're, talk, you're talking about the Sephardic culture. Sephardic culture covers a lot. Or, I mean, or, you or, have or, Arab Jews, you have right. African Jews, you have Iranian Jews, and uh, we don't know anything about them. We don't learn anything about them. Wow. And their languages are all but exterminated because, you know, in every country there was a Jewish language, just like Yiddish and Ladino, there was a Persian Jewish and Moroccan Jewish and so on. Uh, it was all erased. It was all uh, eliminated. And now the second, third generation of these people are trying to revive it, but not at schools, not in schools. In school, I think we have one book about Iraqi uh, Jews, but it's not part of the textbook. It's something aside. Also, the suffering of uh, Libyan and North African Jews during the Holocaust is concealed. Only a few years ago, they started to talk about it at all. But in school books, we have chapters that say, I don't know, 700,000 uh, Jews from North Africa and Libya were murdered. Is that a Holocaust? This is what they ask the children. I mean, they under underestimate the 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 the, the Holocaust of uh, of Jews from Muslim countries. So everything is concealed. Everything is erased. Palestine and Jewish diaspora. You mentioned how the collective memory created seeks to transfer a modern day Holocaust as a threat to the Palestinians. How is this justified? The Holocaust. To the Palestinians? Yes. No, the Palestinians as potential exterminators. As potential exterminators. Yes, that's what they say. For example, in the, in the final exam last year, and also the years before, I think, the only questions they had about the Holocaust was something they called design of Holocaust remembrance. 
and they enumerate all the Palestinian terror attacks, starting from Maalot and Minchen and Antebe and all these. And uh, they ask the, the students how these attacks made Israelis identified with Holocaust victims. I mean, Palestinian resistance to occupation is equal to Nazi uh, extermination. And, and, the, and, and the students believe this? I mean, of course, of course. And the chapters in the books are the same. When uh, I think in Antebbe it was, there were German terrorists too, and they divided the, 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 the passengers into Jews and non-Jews. Your mind goes uh, directly to Auschwitz, and they make this uh, comparison. Also, they like to quote, for example, Begin, who said that Arafat was Hitler and that the Lebanon war saved us from another Treblinka uh, all the time. I mean, this is, uh, and it's funny because the Palestinians, but it's, it's a little bit like the Jews were in Europe uh, because they are portrayed as primitive, dirty, vile, and lawless on one hand, and as almighty Nazis on the other hand. Yeah, that's that's uh, the. And we have Auschwitz borders, you know. Abba even said that, mm. and they keep they keep quoting these things. We have Auschwitz uh, borders, and the '67 war uh, saved us from total extermination, and so on and so forth. The politics of fear. You also underscore that this uh, dehumanizing narrative about Palestinians will inform the behavior of Israel children who will all serve in the Israeli uh, defense forces when they turn 18. Isn't that so? Well, that's what I said in the beginning. That was my question. How do you educate nice and good children to become monsters when they are 18 and they are drafted to the army? And if you read the publications of uh, Breaking the Silence, uh, where you have confessions of soldiers, of what they did in the territories, uh, you come across very often this, this thing when they say, I believed that everything I do to Palestinians will save us from another Holocaust until I saw myself aiming a rifle at a little girl and then I realized it was the other way around and then you have the change. But this is what they believe. I mean, it's very easy to indoctrinate children to believe that the next door neighbor is a witch. It's not hard. This is also a narrative that Palestinian students, uh, I'm talking about Palestinian students of uh, with Israeli citizenship, they are also required to consume this yeah, yeah. as well. So yeah. uh, talk about the psychological damage that this might inflict on, on a young person. Well, you know, people don't get the knowledge from textbooks alone. But yes, uh, Palestinian Arab Israeli um, schools have the same books translated to them. I mean, they have one book. They cannot choose. They have only one book. Uh, and if you look at the book, it's in the colors of the flag and you have a, photo, uh, a drawing of Herzl on it. They, are, they get a very good Zionist uh, education. They don't even uh, learn about their own literature and poetry. Uh, I had students uh, in the university, teachers, who told me it was a course of translation, and they said it's the first time I read Mahmoud Arish. You see, they 
if they don't seek it from them for themselves, they have no right to study anything about their own history or their own culture. In- including at the university or are you just talking no, about? No, no, university is different. Is... University, yeah. This is you're talking about at, 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 at schools. So, I mean, you were, you grew up in Jerusalem and uh, you've had uh, first-hand experience of what it is to be inoculated with messages that, that we've been talking about. At, at what point did you become aware of this distorted belief uh, system? Because you were also at one point yeah, a youngster and, and uh, one of those children. Yes, very patriotic. Yeah. Well, it takes time. Uh, first of all, my father was very critical of the of the whole Israeli uh, mindset and, uh, and uh, Zionism. He said Zionism is on its course, and he was very critical of the army and so on, as you know. And um, he was one of the first, you know, after he left the army, he he, uh, he founded the Israel-Palestine Council. He was the first notable to fly to Tunis, disguised as a woman, by the way, to meet Arafat. And he really dedicated the the second half of his life to 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 peace with Palestinians and so on. So this is my background. But it took me, I mean, I had to leave the country and live outside to start understanding how brainwashed we were. Yeah, you have to go out and look at this place from outside to right. see how militarized it is, how racist it is, how uh, questions like, are you Jewish or not a racist? Are you Sephardic Jew or Ashkenazi Jew a racist? Are you Arab or Jewish is racist? And uh, we don't feel it because the whole the, the 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 small talk in Israel is racist. The whole discourse is racist. School books keep keep bouldering the children with statistics of how many children the Arabs have, how many children the Bedouins have, how many, everything is divided into Jews and Arabs and, and this frightening uh, number thing, you know, they are reproducing, they are multiplying and so on. It's all the time. It's all the time. So it's very hard to, to realize what um, what a terrible mind infection is happening there until you you leave or if you grow in a very special family where things are hammered into you but it's very hard it's really very hard israelis have lived you know as as you've mentioned basically in a very uh, controlled narrative but now with the internet with uh, a change in the international attitude. I mean, just just within the past two years, uh, Human Rights Watch has labeled Israel as an apartheid state. Amnesty International as as well. The I had last week. Uh, my guest was the uh, uh, United Nations rapporteur, who also said Israel is an apartheid. Who she said that Israel is an apartheid state. Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, also labeled it as an apartheid state. The former Israeli uh, attorney general wrote an article saying, is, so, I mean, are Israelis isolated from all this that they've been reading about or and, and or no. are they burying their heads in the sand and are in denial? Yes. They want not to know. It's very active. 
So, uh, so even with all this evidence, that they, they no, just no. The evidence it. comes from people who are either anti-Semitic or self-hating Jews. You see, this is it. And they believe that, regardless of the evidence. They and... are anti-Semitic. The Amnesty is anti-Semitic. The UN is. Everyone who is not Jewish Zionist is anti-Semitic. So uh, organizations like B'Tselem are self-hating Jews, are the traitors, and maybe this government will just put us all in the gulag. I don't know. But this is the way they're treated in Israel. Well, I mean, you don't see any shift kind of an attitude like with, you know, usually when people get educated about things, maybe they, they look in the mirror and they reflect like what happened maybe in South Africa and there'll be a change of heart. But you don't see that on, in, Listen, on the horizon. I don't see any teenager goes to the internet to verify what they learn at school. Okay, in any country, they couldn't care less. They have to learn it by heart for the exam, and that's it. They don't care. They care about music and things and fashion and so on. And, uh, you know, education and the army uh, build on that. They couldn't care less. But they know that Arabs are people to be hated because they're dangerous. They want to exterminate us. This is it. Okay, if you show me one or two teenagers in any country who go to the Internet to see if he's... Uh, history teacher was telling the truth or not. I doubt it. Okay. So um, I think if you're not a victim, then you really don't care. I believe Palestinian teenagers are more interested in these things than Israeli teenagers. What about edu educators like yourself? I mean, it's it, the same. I mean, it, it must hurt to know that there is a reality and then you're teaching your young students to hate or you're feeding them with false information? Not everybody knows. I mean, they were the same students. They went through the same uh, course. Some of them do, and there are uh, quite a few uh, private uh, organizations that try to change it. You have organizations called Political Teacher, and you have Zohrot. You probably know Zohrot. This is an organization that uh, that uh, teach how to commemorate the Nakba, and they go to schools and they lecture. Uh, it's a huge thing, and uh, the right of return and so on. And you have you have a lot of you know groups like that who do a wonderful work, but it's not the official. You have the bilingual schools uh, where uh, Jewish and Palestinian children uh, study together in Arabic and Hebrew which is wonderful. So you have some uh, endeavors like that. You have some organizations like that, but it, they're, they're small and they are not supported by any party or by any political uh, organization. Uh, maybe now when we are having this Judeo-Nazi uh, government, uh, people will wake up and these things will grow. Some people say that, you know, that people will wake up and start uh, working together with Palestinian citizens uh, and create some alternative uh, universe in this small place. Maybe. But again, I don't know what, what will happen. I mean, what are the measures that will be taken against any of us? And people are also, uh, they fear for their jobs. This is another thing. They fear for their jobs, meaning in the education system. Yes. No, I know people who, for example, historians who write in a very good, rational way, but when they write a school book, 
which is a wonderful business, they write something else, okay, because they have to comply with the uh, with the ideological uh, common ground in order to be authorized. So there are a lot of uh, you see, and the really the 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 winners, I mean, the occupiers don't care. They have good life. They have good life. So either they want not to know or, you know, from time to time they say, wow, that's too bad. They don't really suffer from the occupation. They don't really suffer from uh, this racism and segregation and so on. They don't feel it. So they are not interested. And they don't care about the reputation of the country internationally? Like, no, I've, everybody I've, I've is anti-Semitic. Everybody is anti-Semitic. Regardless. I mean, I've mentioned every single human rights organization that now labels Israel as uh, an apartheid state, and that doesn't bother them. No. First of all, apartheid means separation, and everybody in Israel is for separation, even those who call themselves left. They are for separation. They still speak in terms of we and them. Okay? So apartheid is not that bad for them. And they don't go into details, okay? Let's put a wall between us and everything will be fine. Something like that. And this is left people talking. Nurit Peled Elhanan, thank you for for sharing your thoughts uh, on Arab talk. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry I was late. (laughs) That's the voice and face of Nurit Peled Elhanan. She is talking with you, Jamal about her extraordinary work and research looking at the the racism and the humiliation and dehumanization of Palestinians in Israeli textbooks, kind of a really profound and yet ironic twist on the on the kind of narrative that we hear from European, American, and obviously uh, Israeli ideologues talking about Palestinian textbooks. But Nurit turns that upside down based on research, based on her own work, and uh, it's very compelling. Yeah, and not only this, Jess. I mean, of course, uh, what she talks about is brainwashing uh, Israeli children's uh, early right. on, and these are the same children who will grow up when they reach the age eighteen to become soldiers, and they were they get sent to uh, basically terrorize uh, Palestinians, uh, mostly in the West Bank. But also, she talks about that. Uh, they also do the, the same thing, the same type of brainwashing, subjecting Palestinian children with Israeli citizenship, what who we refer to 1948 Palestinians, right. to to kind of see a whole uh, false narrative about their history. I mean, imagine uh, a child being in a classroom, and and you could talk about the psychological impact when they are told that uh, they have no history, no culture. They, you don't teach them anything about their uh, poetry or anything about their language, but then you try to portray that Palestinians are basically are the usurpers instead of the opposite, the other way around, and uh, that uh, Israelis, Jewish Israelis, have the right to the land, regardless whether they arrived yesterday or a week ago from Russia or the Ukraine. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal, and that's why this work by Nurit is so important. And uh, we can only hope that uh, U.S. lawmakers, European lawmakers will read her research and work 
and show that this uh, demonization and dehumanization of Palestinians in Israeli textbooks and directed toward, as 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 you just said, and as she indicated, towards Palestinians who are still living in you know 1948, what it's like for those children, it's it's dehumanizing at a level that is just uh, you know very traumatic for them too. But very important piece of work, and uh, we're just. Uh, Glad that somebody's doing this kind of work uh, to highlight this. Moving on, Jess, do you have World Cup fever? Are you? Uh, have you been? Have you start watching some of the games? Well, I don't know if I can watch it without beer, Jamal. That's uh, <laughs> part of the problem, and uh, I, of course, I'm making a joke about that because here you have Qatar, who over the last ten years plus has spent billions and billions of dollars creating this. Uh, if you will, a mega complex to host the World Cup. Now, I've been to Qatar in the last 10 years, maybe eight or nine times. I saw the construction. I saw the new stadium, uh, various stadia that were being built. They're extraordinary. They're bringing in a million people to uh, an infrastructure uh, that has never you know, been able to handle an influx of people like this. You have to give the Qataris a lot of a lot of credit, Jamal, but that's not what we're hearing in the nah, mainstream. Nah. Yeah, what we're hearing is how dare Qatar not allow us to drink beer. Now it's it's more complicated, Jamal. You can drink beer in Doha in Qatar. You just can't drink it in the stadium. That's right. And that that's that's actually the least of it. Uh, I mean, they've been criticized on on all f- fronts. And 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 uh, let's be, let's be clear first just Qatar is definitely not a model uh democracy, right? I mean, actually, no, it's a monarchy. It's actually you could say the same thing about almost every country in in the Middle East. It's also definitely not a haven for feminists or the LGBTQ community. It's not. And it has a, a bad record. I would even call it an atrocious record on the treatment and expulsions of foreign laborers. However, so is most of these critics. I mean, this is this is the thing about it. Okay, so all these things now, because this is the first Arab country to host the world the World Cup, Jess, and the criticism is coming from colonial Britain. Hello. Hello. All these people <laughs> who destroyed basically the entire Middle East, Africa. Um, India and and so on. They're criticizing the human rights violations in in Qatar, right? We're talking about countries, including here the United States, uh, which don't does not have a, a very good record on on immigrants treatment of 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 immigrants and so forth. And then they're cr- criticizing what's happening in Qatar. You have criticism from the hotbed of Islamophobia and xenophobia, France and Germany, right. criticizing Qatar, you know. And we didn't see this happening even. I would say, just to be frank, because I watch everything ever since, I probably I can't remember, ever since I was maybe four years old, I, I've watched the World Cup, starting with my, my dad and so forth. And I think the only country that came under a lot of criticism is when Russia hosted it. Right. We we, we didn't see right. this 
foreign treatment, for example, I can I can name so many countries. Japan, for example, hosted the you know and and their treatment to migrants and their treatment of of Koreans and and of course you know the history of Japan with comfort women and so forth. Japan didn't come under under criticism. Every single country didn't come under criticism. Now all of a sudden, Qatar is under the microscope. Yeah. And, they, and they've been watching every single thing. And I, like I said, I, I'm the first. We are the first people to say Qatar is not a democracy. But it's it never claimed to be a democracy, Jamal. And let let's talk about cultural respect. Let's call. The, let's talk about how it is when you go to somebody's home. And this reminds me of the uh, Larry David episode of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Larry David goes into somebody else's home. And he's told to take off his shoes. That's part of the culture at this home. And he refuses to take off his shoes and walks all over this person's home, causing this big outrage. When you go to somebody's home and you've been invited to come some, to somebody's home, there's a certain kind of respect that you give when you go to somebody else's home. Qatar's home, for good or bad, for for the better or for the worse, has whatever cultural norms that it expects of its visitors, and you either accept it or you don't. And Qatar has invested billions of dollars to make this World Cup happen, and yet we're seeing a kind of disrespect for the cultural kinds of sensitivities and norms that the Qataris have. It's it's not complicated, everybody. If you don't like it, then don't go. If you have concerns, it's fine to criticize. But have some cultural humility, have some cultural respect, understand that this is not a democracy. And of course, I think the th- the point that you make, Jamal, which is so poignant, it's like, what what is the saying, Jamal? It's like the pot calling the kettle black. To have France and the UK criticize Qatar with the atrocities that these countries have committed during their own occupation of Africa and the Middle East, it's kind of... Well, if it's, you talk about their their, their um, uh, laws towards, you know, I mean, or feminist uh, approach and so forth, when this country where we, you and I live, has recently basically robbed American women from the right to determine control their bodies, control their bodies. I mean, right here in the United States in the twenty first century, the Supreme Court basically reversed what has been on the books for decades just with, yes. a, with one vote basically that's right and, and then we go and try to lecture them about how they should behave towards uh, women and so forth and you can go like you know listen up until 2012 yes people don't remember this former president barack obama obama I just want to remind people, publicly opposed gay marriage. That's right. Up to 2012, uh, basically, uh, while uh, in the same year, the uh, the U.S. enacted 114 bills and, uh, and adopted 92 resolutions targeting migrants and refugees. Hello. This is This is right here in the United States. And I mentioned Japan as an example because no one criticized Japan. And Japan has draconian policies that criminalize asylum seekers, basically uh, Germany, which basically also all, all these things is the EU's largest emitter of greenhouse gases because they're also like complaining about oil and whatever, you know, like gas in, 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 in Qatar. They hosted the tournament in 2008. We didn't hear any complaint about that. 
Brazil also was butchering and cutting down the Amazon rainforest. They didn't come under attack when they hosted the World Cup in 2014. And, and last but not least, I have to say that these countries, starting with France, I go back to France, of course, with their Islamophobic uh, you know, behavior and xenophobic behavior, and then going to Germany and others, right? They're the ones now who are relying on, on Qatar to, to give them gas. Natural gas. Natural begging. gas. And begging. Begging, begging, beg- for, begging for it. Jamal, and, then, and then yet their media is vicious. I've been looking at what has been published in France uh, 24, France 24, I mean, what has been shown, I should say, and in BB, uh, on, on the BBC and so forth. Everything, everything they have been critical of. Yeah, Jamal, it's uh, the hypocrisy reeks. And, uh, you know, they have been begging the Qataris for natural gas. They have. And the other thing I want to say a little bit about, it's so ironic that they're and this, including this country, has attacking the Qataris for their uh, lack of LGBTQ-friendly kind of environment. How ironic is that when this country creates an atmosphere where LGBT folks are murdered? And we just had a murder two days ago. Colorado that, Springs? In Colorado Springs, in which, you know, LGBTQ folks were murdered and injured in the United States, and this continues to happen against the LGBT community here. So, the, again, look at the hypocrisy. It's convenient for these uh, media outlets and these regimes to be able to cut us, criticize the Qataris. Yet at the same time, the Qataris um, uh, uh, managed to pull off an extraordinary feat, Jamal, of building all of these stadiums and hosting the World Cup and having an what I thought was like an amazing opening ceremony. And again, and I know we keep saying this, we're not saying the Qataris don't have problems. Qatar has many, many problems. But in that context, let's call it what it is. They did it successfully. You're going to somebody's home and culture. Okay, respect it or don't go. Come on, let's, what, what's the big deal? I, I have to say that one of the worst interviews I saw, Jamal, was uh, this was, I think, on NBC. Yeah, NBC, like uh, their national news program, interviewed one person about uh, their experience in Doha right now. And the only soundbite was, I can't drink beer. This is terrible. That that was the whole soundbite about this Brit Complaining that can't oh, drink beer for ninety minutes. That's I can't the, drink that's, beer that's, for ninety this minutes. Is how long? How long is the game? Just ninety minutes. Right. Right. Which, and, which and, again, you've mentioned this. You can drink beer anywhere in Qatar, in hotels, and they have bars and and what have you. But you and they have so they have fan zones where you can go and drink beer. So this this concept is just the way it's been portrayed and twisted. Is just the hypocrisy is just like. It reeks of disgust for well, me. It started from the minute you know Qatar uh, won the bid and allegations of corruptions with FIFA, and then of course we know FIFA is a very corrupt organization. <laughs> That's like actually. So don't like blame it on the Qataris. FIFA, you just do your homework. 
and and just google very corrupt uh, very corrupt google very corrupt fifa's corruption and then you don't have to target qatar anyway uh we'll come back to that we'll follow it cuz we'll yeah, follow because it. every week we're going to be watching anyway and uh the, i watched the first uh, the first game to say and qatar got slaughtered in the opening which is not good for never them. happened it's never happened you know an open uh host country has never lost in 92 years no and oh and here's one one before we move on one more thing they criticize qatar is like why is qatar hosting it because they don't have a great team actually this is not true because even though they lost qatar is has a champion, good team is right. a champion of uh, the asian competition champion and when the united states hosted the World Cup right here, if you remember a few years ago, the United States had the worst team ever, and we still hosted the, you know, so so right. everything is like laden with hypocrisy and controversy and so forth. Anyway, your favorite uh, <laughs> prince, uh, MBS. Um, I, he's just resurgent on the world stage, Jamal. As well, the price of oil goes up, his stock goes up, he gets away with murder, he's given, you know, immunity by the U.S. government against lawsuits for the killing and murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And now he's beheading people uh, for drug offenses in the in the uh, in the regime. It's like, what is going on, Jamal? Well, as the uh, like, that's what I was going to say. As the world is busy watching one in one direction, uh, the war between Russia and the Ukraine, and then the other one now they're busy watching the World Cup. Saudi Arabia executed twelve people in the past ten days for drug offenses after two years hiatus. Uh, you know, they decided to go back to the old habits. And then again, when you get these charges, just there is no transparency. So, so someone can be uh, just uh, against the Saudi regime, and they can just uh, charge them with uh, with an offense like drug charges. And these defendants were sentenced to sentenced to death after being imprisoned on non-violent drug charges, including three Pakistanis, four Syrians, two Jordanians, and uh, three Saudis. This is according to human rights organizations. With a total number of people executed this year to at least 132, exceeding those of 2020 and 2021 combined. Wow. So that's why we're bringing this up because it's not like just a footnote. Uh, they're just going left and right, uh, executing people. And uh, if you remember in 2018, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, had said that his administration had tried to minimize capital punishment with only those found guilty of murder uh, being uh, subject to capital punishment. So... Uh, you know, they're, they're executing people on, on nonviolent drug charges. Well, I think there's a correlation, Jamal, between the price of oil and the brutality of MBS. I think, you know, especially after that disastrous visit that Biden had with MBS, where Biden went begging for oil and completely blew that exchange with MBS. Since that, uh, since that visit, the price of oil has gone up. The supply has gone down. They haven't increased it. And, uh, you know, MBS is, 
you know, presence on the world stage at the at the G20 and all of these events and his kind of involvement in the in the war in, in Russia and Ukraine, his support of Russia still, um, his minimizing of uh, engagement with uh, U.S. foreign policy. He is emboldened, Jamal. And again, I alluded to it earlier. The United States has given MBS immunity from any lawsuits. There's a lawsuit brought against MBS by his uh, by his wife, uh, Jamal Khashoggi's wife, and others. And they they gave MBS immunity, so he can't be sued. The guy is acting with impunity. Who's going to stop him? As the price of oil keeps going higher, Jamal, his brutality increases. It's really tragic. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes, and we will speak to you next week. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.